<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of True Crime and Cocktails. It's your bitch, Christy Oxborough, and with me, as always, the love of my life, the Kelly to my Clarkson, Miss Lauren Ash. How you doing? I'm jazzed. Oh, oh, yeah. I like jazzed. Yeah, you know, it's been a real journey for me. Um, <laughs> last week, I alluded to you. Mm-hmm. You you started the conversation, and then I. I yes anded. That's an improv reference for the improv comedy hey. uh, people out there. Uh, but no, you were talking about how when we choose episodes for the show, we research a little bit to figure out what we want to do, but we don't go into any sort of deep dive at that stage because sure, the time and all of oh, the above. Oh, yeah, there's and- no time to go too deep. No, and also no. you're probably looking into, you could be looking into 10 or 15 different things to try and decide what you want to do. So if you find something, you like it, you choose it, and then you probably may not come back to it for a few weeks. So yeah. you and I both were feeling uh, something which we haven't experienced before, which is picking a case um, and then when you get into it going, oh, oh shoot, there isn't a lot here, or this isn't what I thought it was. So mm-hmm. I have been, last week I referenced that I was like, I'm nervous because I I chose something and then immediately d- learned that it's like, this isn't what I thought it was. But when I tell you, boy, oh boy, there's a case here. Oh, I'm jazzed. I'm jazzed. No one saw it coming less than me. I could not be more relieved for you. Yeah, it was a relief. I did text, text Christy partway through the week because she knew I was very anxious about this. And then I just wrote, welp. We got a case. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm going to say, you have texted before in like, if you find something really juicy in the, you know, in your notes, it's one of my favorite texts I will get from you because it comes out of nowhere. I don't know she's researching in that moment. I don't know what she's doing. It's the uh, out of context text yep. that you referred to uh, a few episodes ago, uh, where it's just, oh, I won't tell you what. 
<laughs> but we got a case. <laughs> I guess for me, yeah. I'm just always looking for at least like one reveal, at least one thing where it's like, okay, we've got a hook. Like there's something juicy or interesting, you know. And this oh, one, it. this one isn't even necessarily a hook. This story just takes a turn that I just never saw coming. So, buckle in. I oh, I, in. I absolutely uh, can't wait because my God, I know nothing yeah. about this, so I can't wait to see where this is going to go. I know that there's something, and oh, we got a case, but that's about it. So I have no idea which way it could go. Uh, but I'm going to ask right early out the gate. Yeah. What you drinking over there? Well, I like to stay sober when I'm Sorry, driving the bus. Sorry, what trio are you drinking over there? Ah, see, I only have two, which is a shame, because ah. I normally do have a trifecta. Yeah. I've got my water in my Bitch 2 uh, Las Vegas cup, of and course. then I've just got a, I've got a Diet Coke going, because uh, I'm just trying to keep the caffeine pumping um, for me to get through this. But I get when, that. We, when we get to the tail end, there's wine in that fridge. <laughs> <laughs> I just have to, yeah. I have to yeah. do my work. And then I get my treat. You know what I mean? Mama's got to work. Yep. And then it's going to be time uh, to let loose. And then Mama get loose and play. <laughs> <laughs> no, I get that. I get that. I uh, I also have the water, although I chose this very adorable, durable, and keeps it cold, true crime and cocktails uh, water bottle. Thank uh, you. Yeah, that's advertising. But look, I'll say it. It's changed my life. It's a good product. I, I drink a lot more water now than I uh, than I ever used to. Uh, and then along your lines, oh, the caffeine. Yeah. It's it's earlier than we usually record, but both of us had a really shitty sleep last night. We did, for yeah. For different reasons. Like I was just up and like tossing and turning and then looked over at one point and it was 3 a.m. And I'm like, what are we doing here? That took everything I had not to... <laughs> go into the Matchbox 20 lyrics. I'm really forcing myself not to. There we go. Um, I just had to let that out. Uh, but uh, I personally made a quick stop. 7-Eleven. I, nice. uh, I had to get myself a beautiful, nice and thick Pepsi Slurpee. It's what I needed. Hope that that caffeine hits me hard. <laughs> because it's my plan kids out the door i'm gonna go back to bed and i got back in that bed and laid there yeah <laughs> nothing happened i was like this is disappointing so then i end up getting my phone out and i'm doing work on my phone and then it's like at least i'm comfortable i guess i don't know it is what it is yeah uh yeah i had a i just had a busy day and i have kind of a busy week so I stayed up very late last night to finish this, and I I really can't true crime late at night. It it just it haunts me. It haunts my dreams. Sure. Uh, yeah, it was terrible. It was just a terrible sleep. Terrible sleep. I think I've just I think I'm just dead inside. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> and so, sure. and so now I mean I guess it also could be for me that I know that there are multiple people in my home. Yeah. Late at night, so it never dawns on me uh, that there could be a problem. Because I'm a lot tougher when people are at home than I am when people aren't. Yeah. Because if I'm alone, then I'm like, what's that noise? And it's like, you know it's the cats. <laughs> Calm down. You know it's the cats. It's always the cats. Uh, and then all of a sudden you see a cat somewhere else and you're like, but that's, uh-oh. And then it freaks me out. So I get it. I am a lot tougher uh, 
when I know people are here, but yeah, I've also forced myself this year to go to bed at a reasonable hour instead of staying up to like three or four like I used to. Uh, now, my insomnia is like, guess what, bitch? We're still staying up. <laughs> Sometimes it just means a little extra homescapes on my phone. Of course. And let me tell you, I'm stuck on a level right now and... No matter how much that character is going to call me his best friend, it's not getting us through that level. It's you very know, frustrating. What is this guy's name again? Austin. I don't care for him. No, there's something about him that's off. I've never played the game, but I just feel like he's edging in on my best friend. And I'll be honest, I'm <laughs> jealous. I'll say it. I'm not typically, I try, try not to mm-hmm. be jealous, but I am. Mm-hmm. I get it. Well, look, it's no competition. He barely knows you. I know he's it's calling weird. you his best friend. That's a red flag. Like to his parents. I've never met your parents, sir. I mean, I guess technically as much as I've met him, I've met his parents. But oh, it's there is something about that game. And like look, it. all I want in this game, you do, you have to do these silly little puzzles to get stars and you use the stars to decorate a house All I want to do is the decorating part because this game is by far head and shoulders above other games I've played for the decorating portion. But it's the little puzzles that I'm like, sometimes it's fine because it's quick and easy, but sometimes you get stuck on one and then you're on it for days and you can't progress in the rest of the game you want to play because you're not getting stars any other way. It's very frustrating. Am I going to let it go? No. Have I easily spent $30 on money in the game to be able to help myself pass? Yes. I've put in so much time in this game. I think of it like, how much would I pay for a video game if I was playing that video game? So I'm like, if I put 20, 30 bucks, fine. Maybe by next week, 40, 50, we'll see. (laughs) It's nobody's business. We'll see see what happens. I have gotten very addicted to those games. The game, like like games where, and then I'll find myself putting um, so much money into those, into those games that then I'm like, this is starting to like cross a line. There was one that I got so into and I had to quit cold turkey. (laughs) Um, Yeah, listen, we are who we are. You know what I mean? Like we, we are who we are and we, frankly, um, I wouldn't want us to change at all. No. No. And look, sometimes you just need the brain break. And uh, sometimes when you've been typing and doing stuff for like hours straight, you're like, I just need a second for my brain to just do something else. And if it means getting mad at Austin for being way too familiar, uh, then that's what, then so be it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I played this game years ago and then I stopped because I got stuck on a level and I was just irritated because I'm playing the same thing over and over and I don't like that part. I just do it to get the to get what I need to do the part I actually want. And so I stopped playing for a few years and then came back to it again and was like, I guess. And they've added extra puzzles that are like, no offense, but kind of dumb. And it's just like, but, but no it's also offense. like... <laughs> No offense, Austin, and the people at Homescapes. I'm not as worried Uh, about him taking offense. But but it's just, it's a case of like, it's kind of dumb, but I would prefer the dumb ones because it's quick and easy and you know you're out of it and you got your star so you can do what you want. 
And it was like, I did a bedroom. I did the like a main room. I did a kitchen. And I'm like, oh, great. I can see all these other rooms that are going to unlock. I finished the kitchen. I was like, yeah, what are we doing next? Can't wait. The fucking garden. I'm like, <laughs> give me. <laughs> I don't want not the garden yet. Look at all that shit upstairs. I got to clean that up. <laughs> but it won't let me get there. And it drives me crazy. And all I want is to play that. And uh, it makes me it makes me work for it. Well, I'm sorry about that. I'll say it. No, and again, I could give up, but at this point, now I've crossed the line of, what? I put $30 in. See, that's how they get you. That's how they get you. Then you're literally invested. I know. Well, the problem is, it's like, oh, you only get so many turns to do this puzzle. And it's like, oh, do you want five more? It's going to cost you 900 coins. And it's like, well, I don't have 900 coins. Well, you can buy this package for like 30. I'm like, well, I'm not going to do that. Oh, but I can get a thousand coins for a dollar thirty nine. That seems reasonable. It does seem reasonable once or twice, but after a certain amount of times, it's less reasonable. Yeah. And then it hard bullied me into joining a group, which I didn't want to do. I was like, I don't want to. Gr-. It's like, oh, you'll get extra points and extra coins if you sign up through Facebook. And I was like, I'm not doing that. But it's like. You have to, if you sign up for this group, and it was like a a task I had to do, so I couldn't move on without doing it. So I'm like, fine, I'll join this group. And so I was like, what groups you got for me? And it's like, oh, we've got this 306 group, and it's a Saskatchewan group. So I was like, great. (laughs) So I'm like, done. Apparently, if you need extra lives, you ask your teammates, and they click a button, and it gives them an extra life for nothing. So I'm like, great. And then one teammate in particular kept asking all the time. I don't judge. I just, you ask if I'm on, I give you the life and I move on. After like a week or so of this, suddenly the person puts in the mess in the chat because we can chat, not interested, Austin. Uh, But the person puts in there, sorry, I keep asking. I'm only nine. (laughs) 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 And so every once in a while, I'll be playing this game and I'll get to a level where I'm like, really stuck because there's like regular levels and then there's hard and then there's super hard they are so i get to this super hard and i'm just sitting there and i just keep thinking of my teammate and i'm like just keep giving her lives this level's probably killing her like yeah and there's easily more children in my group based on them and they're chatting hi hi back and forth and i'm like oh no i'm not gonna chat with you but listen, I, I think this sounds like good, clean fun, and it's nice that you're being supportive of the of the children and their other people <laughs> might not be. So there you Look, go. Yeah, and hey, I mean, when I started, when I joined the group, there were 15 of us. Now there's over 30. It can't be stopped. <laughs> I thought <laughs> I thought it had like a cap. We have not hit that cap yet. Speaking of cap. Cap. I know. I was like, oh, that's beautiful. Uh, I would be remiss if I did not mention that today, not the day this airs, the day we're recording. So officially today in Lauren Christie time is June 13th. And I'm going to say on June 13th, 1981, the world was given Christopher Robert Evans. (laughs) He has been gracing our screens since the 2000 TV series Opposite Sex, 
although he did have a bit part in the 1997 video Biodiversity, Wild About Life. So with that, I'm curious, do you have favorite Chris Evans projects? And if so, do you have them in a top five list? Of course I do. There it is. I like that you're asking me this as though we didn't do this before, ahead of time. Um, now I'm, I'm having it. <laughs> I'm Technically, having... before we hit record, I did say, just so you know, I am going to ask you your top five Chris Evans. <laughs> and I was like, give me a minute. I didn't um, want to put you on the spot and make you feel weird. Now, here's what's tough. I don't know that I can rank them. It's hard for me because I, I've chosen things very specifically for very different reasons. Hey, you don't need a ranking system. Yeah. You want me to give you all five and then you give your all, all of your five? Sure. Or should we go back and forth? We can do, you can do you. Okay. These are in no order because it's of just too course. hard for me. Um, Defending Jacob is an Apple TV series. Hey. I binged. He was fabulous. It was such a, a great acting moment for him. And I hadn't heard about it at all. And to that I say, what a shame because it's a, it's a kind of like true crime based. Um, hey. He plays the father of a teen who gets embroiled in a, um, you know, potential crime. Um, and it was sure. so good. And I was like, people should be raving about this. I feel like no one's talking about this show. And it's the whole show is great. Everyone on it is great. And I just thought that his acting, his I think he's a great actor, but his acting in that especially, I was very impressed by. Um, then, of course, the movie Gifted. I loved the animal yes. rescue uh, messaging. I love that oh. that's, of course, the set <laughs> where he met his beloved dog, Dodger, which, of course, resonates with me uh, as an animal rescue uh, advocate. Um and he's very brooding. That character, very broody, yep. which I respond yep. to. I get that. Yeah. And I do think it's cute that him and Jenny Slate met on that movie and then they ended up dating and they dated a couple times. I do think that that's also sweet and cute. So I, I yes. like that. Um, London. There is a sex scene in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there it is. There it is. Him and uh, yeah. Jessica Biel, who I believe were dating in real life at the time. And it's kind of like they're in an yeah. argument and then they're, they're, they they get into it. And I just personally think it is one of the hottest sex scenes in a, a film I've ever seen. <laughs> so it made the top five. Of course. <laughs> of course it did. Um, before we go is a movie that I watched and really enjoyed and then found out after the fact that he had also directed it. And I'm like, hey. I have to go back and watch it again now because I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was like a great um, smaller film. Um, I thought the acting was really, it's kind of like a two-hander. I thought the acting sure. was really great. Um, and as somebody who I have written a screenplay that I would like to direct, I thought it was very, it's always very inspiring to see actors who who do that because it can be intimidating. And I thought he did a fabulous job and I look forward to watching it again. Um, to pay closer attention because, again, I didn't realize going in that he had also directed. Sure. And then the, the final, and this I will say is my number one. I can't choose between the rest, but this is my number one. Okay. Chris Evans went on Jimmy Kimmel. Uh, this would have been, oh. I want to say 2017. Sure. <laughs> and they did a bit where he talked about he had a new movie coming out called Dennis. And it just so happened that it was like, well, I've been following this man around and I'm making a movie about his life. He's here. It cuts the audience. Now, side note, 
the gentleman in the audience, the actor playing the quote real life Dennis, is a buddy of mine from Second City Chicago, Brendan Jennings, hilarious, yeah. wonderful angel human. Uh, shout out to him. But anyway, and then they just go into this movie trailer where it's Chris Evans playing his character, and it's basically him just playing what is the most pathetic human alive. And sure. of course, it's like a terrible roast of this man. It's not at all a nice uh, rendition. And he's, I think what it is for me is that Chris Evans is so committed to the performance in this comedy sketch. Like he's so committed to the bit. And he's so funny. Like it's just yeah. so well acted. It's ridiculous. It's just so funny. <laughs> he's just, again, playing like the most, I, I watched it. So many times, I forced yeah. everybody I know to watch it. I've sent it to you. Uh, you I've sent it. I've sent it to <laughs> so many people, and I'm just like, "How is nobody?" Again, much, much like defending Jacob, I'm like, "How is no one talking about this? This is hilarious." I'm sorry, yeah. but Chris Evans, Dennis, I think it's a comedic. It's a stroke of comedic genius, and uh, you, uh, we'll put up a link or something. You, you guys got to watch this. Yeah. It's very funny. The cheeseburger in the toilet. <laughs> I think that I bit. Can't. It's That's so what, funny. It's and then it's it's Dennis's face after he's seen the trailer and realized what it is. And it's it's just like, wait, what? Like it's it's like, did you like it? And he's like, me. not really. Yeah. <laughs> and then There's he's also, super insulted that he didn't like it. Like Oh, it's just such yeah. a good, easy, simple bit, but it's so Again, his his performance is so committed. That's why, to me, it's sure. so funny. Because he doesn't, like, play it for laughs. He's just playing it very committed that he is this, like, piece of shit loser dude. There's of a course. moment, too, in the trailer where, like, the, the actress playing the wife is just like, <laughs> I don't love you anymore, and your penis is weird. <laughs> something like that. But it's just, like, something yeah. about the wording that just... Anyway, I think it's his finest work. There you go. <laughs> I want to see Kev... I, what I'm saying... Bottom line, Chris Evans needs to be in a big comedy. He used to be, yeah. he used to do comedies all the time. I want to see him in a big, uh, we were talking about Channing Tatum being underrated for being funny. I think Chris Evans absolutely in the exact same boat. Oh my God, the two of them together. A buddy comedy with those uh, two? Ah, uh, ah. Uh, I'm already uncomfortable downstairs. <laughs> same, same. It would be overwhelming to the senses. Oh yeah, yeah. Good God. Anyway, that's, yeah, that's I get my it. list. That's my list. Oh, I like it. Well, I'll tell you what. We had one crossover. Hey! And I think you'll be surprised maybe at what it is. Maybe not, but... Uh, I hope it's so, Dennis. <laughs> <laughs> I, if I had thought of Dennis, I probably would have put it. Because I cheated and added two bonus ones. They don't count as top five because one I haven't seen yet, but I feel like I have to mention Oh, of course. And I know it. Which is, is ridiculous. Yep, of course. Uh, because, you know, I have to mention Lightyear. Of course. I haven't seen it. I've already looked into when is it, like, what time this weekend maybe I could go. And then I was like, what time won't be crazy busy because I don't need a lot of kids yelling in my ear while I'm trying to focus on the craft. Uh, and then I saw like, oh, it's on like 1130 in the morning on Sunday. I'm like, oh, I could do that. I could do that. And then I was like, oh, it's Father's Day. I can't really duck out. <laughs> Although I guess I could take the kids with me and give him a, let him sleep in late or something. Uh, the point is, I'll say Lightyear, I haven't seen it yet. Of but course. when I do see it, I'm going to rave. I feel. 
Oh, yeah. Everybody's like raving about it. So, yeah, I think so. Uh, I'm freaked out at the thought of seeing him with hair. I know. I've seen clips of him with hair, and it freaks me out, but I need to just push through. Uh, my other bonus uh, is his cameo in Free Guy. Uh, because that <laughs> absolutely cracked me up. It was literally less than 10 minutes on set. I think it said he was asked if he would do it. And he's like, if it takes less than 10 minutes. And he was in and out of that set in seven because he was already working on another film. But it was just his reaction. And that is funny. Um, but also to I don't know who specifically is responsible for making the movie Free Guy. But shout out to them and the casting directors specifically for giving me a movie that features all of my loves, Ryan Reynolds, Jodie Comer, Taika Waititi, and Joe Keery. <laughs> all of them in one. It's, it's a beautiful thing. If you haven't seen it, what a delight. So my top five, number five, because I've numbered them because I know no other way. 2004 Cellular. Oh, yeah. Because I love Kim Basinger. Sure. And I feel like she just doesn't get... I feel like like 80s, early 90s, people were like, oh, Kim Basinger. And now they just... I mean, now this is 2004. The point is, I just don't think she gets enough props. Jessica Biel was also uh, his love interest in that movie. Hey. Yeah. Uh, number four, The Perfect Score. Which he is right. in with, uh, yes. I believe, Scarlett Johansson yes. was also in that one. Uh, number three, Gifted. Because, again, something about him trying to raise a child, him interacting with a child, and I want to pet his dog, Dodger, more than I want air. Yeah, I get that. Because Dodger looks so soft and just like such a good boy. Like, I just want to yeah. pet him so bad. Uh, number two, Captain America, Winter Soldier. Of course. That one specifically, because I'm going to get a lot of hate for making this comment, but I'm going to say it. The first Captain America was dry. <laughs> <laughs> it's worth it. It's worth the hate to speak my truth. The Listen, point you is, do you, you do you. I watched it. I went into it all hopeful. The CGI freaked me out of him being, of them making him all little and then making, like, that freaked me out. I just, it didn't sit well with me. But there, it just, I felt that one. And then we're getting into the war and I'm like, uh-huh. And I felt that one just kind of, not unlike our episodes, went on a little longer. <laughs> <laughs> but Captain America Winter Soldier, hoo like, yeah. yeah, 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 I get that. And of course, I mean, I am a fan of uh, the other Avengers movies. Uh, Thor Ragnarok is, of course, 100% my number one favorite. Yeah, you've brought that up a few times. I know, I because again, Taika Waititi, what I wouldn't do. Um, I just, oh God, and now I'm just thinking of him as a gay pirate in uh, Our Flag Means Death. I oh right! Seen it? But I haven't. What? What a delight! Because him and Reese Darby, what? What a delight! Like I can't scream from the rooftops enough about that show. Uh, but my number one Chris Evans project pick. What's your number? Okay. Because this is the sort of 
flick, if I may. You may. Uh, that I would see in my youth. I mean, this was 2011, so not really my youth. But if I had seen it, it like my teens, I would have been like, yep, that's it. I'm going to move to a big city, live in a big apartment building, and I'm going to have a hot thing for my neighbor across the hall. This is how it would, would, work, would work. But in that movie, he helps the main character hunt down past boyfriends. <laughs> yes. And when she goes into his apartment, he has a huge like murder board set up trying to find each of these guys with like strings pointing. There is something that just went into my soul with that one. And we we uh, rewatched it recently and I was like, yeah, yeah, this is the ticket. This is the ticket. It's very he's charming. Also, he is also ridiculously charming in that. And he's a musician and he's so polite and loving and supportive and that's all it takes. Listen. That's all it takes. But I like that of the the ten, there was only one that we crossed over. I know. Well, listen, he's been he has a very I mean, he's he's only 41, but he has a prolific career. He's been in a lot of stuff. I mean, honestly, I'd say 29. Yeah. You know, if young. I didn't know. I know. I'd say 29, so and listen, Kudos also, uh, people go to my social, uh, go to my uh, personal uh, Instagram account, and you can see the fan art that someone made of him and I on a rooftop, uh, <laughs> which is real, real cute. Um, and also, I just want to do a, a do an all call because we've been getting some real, yeah. real fun fan art, which is just there's been some recently, which is just <laughs> putting one of us with a celebrity we've talked about on the show. Uh, yeah, that's the uh, loose, loosely connected to the podcast, but I love it. And I welcome yeah. it. So it's always welcome. You know, you can uh, send it to our uh, our email, uh, you know, truecrimecocktails yeah. at gmail.com. That'll reach us. I love that mentally I was like, will it? <laughs> I, I it should will. know it will. our email address. It's, I'd say it's been a long day, but... 2020's been a long year, man. <laughs> it really it's not has. even 2020 anymore. I 2022 know. is what yeah. I meant. It's yeah. like it's just been it's been a lot. Look. Well, listen. Speaking of being a lot, uh, I'm going to stop because I uh, have a synopsis to read about today's episode. Yes, which is about Lavinia Fisher. That's it. Who I know nothing about except we've got a case. And I've and really it. gone for it with this synopsis and how I've written it. So just just prepare yourself for that. Well, I need you to know, I looked at the first two words and went, oh, she really went for it. <laughs> uh, because you know what? Like you, I do not pre-read these. I should, because I don't have, you know, professional training in any way to like do things on the fly so that it seems natural. Uh, this is just what happens. I like that there's bold in here. I just <laughs> I just like what's happening. And I can't wait for this. As do I. So. I, I'm just so delighted by you. Thank you. Picture this. 1819. Charleston, South Carolina. The wagon trade is booming. Wagons loaded with materials like cotton, tobacco, and animal hides could travel long distances to reach the wagon yards of Charleston. 
This meant wagoneers needed places along the route to stop and rest. Enter Lavinia and John Fisher, owners of the Six Mile House, a stage tavern or inn approximately six miles from Charleston. This was the setting for Lavinia to become the United States' first female serial killer. Here, she preyed upon unsuspecting guests at the inn, along with the help of her husband, John. Or did she? What if I told you there is actually no proof that Lavinia and John killed anyone? And the real story of Lavinia and John Fisher is more of more full of more intrigue than many modern-day true crime cases. Well, buckle up, buttercups, because Lauren Ash is about to take us all on a journey where she tells us the truth about this (laughs) back-in-time cry. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that. Yep, we're we're losing it. We're just losing it. Look, we're just... we're, We're just two ladies... Getting by. Getting by. <laughs> it is it is what it is. Oh, listen. I can't what a gift wait. in my life. So yes, um I'm gonna get into all of it. Obviously, I was under the yeah. impression Lavinia Fisher was the first documented female serial killer in the United States. I very quickly learned uh probably not the case. Um but <laughs> I found a book called Six Miles to Charleston, The True Story of John and Lavinia Fisher. It was written by a man named Bruce Orr, published in 2010. And he really got into this case. And he has done unbelievable research. He's got so many references in that book, photos. Um, He just really, really puts together uh, what does seem to be a pretty definitive tale of what he, it, it appears that this story is actually about, um, again, there's there's still some speculation, but I'm going to get into all of it. But that is really the main source. I didn't only use that, but that is really the main source that I, I drew upon for this episode. I'm just sure. putting that out there um, right away because there isn't a lot of other coverage of this out there. This book is really kind of a definitive source for a lot of the history um, surrounding this specific case. Um, but well, before I mean, I- my God, we're looking at... What year did I say? 1819? 1819, yeah. Like, yeah, I don't suspect to find a lot of websites about it. Not a lot. Not so, a lot. Yep. Hey, you find information where you find information. 100%. Exactly. Anyway, so I'm going to get into all of it. But before I do, uh, I will just warn that in this episode, there will be mentions of suicide. Um, so a trigger warning for anyone who needs it about that. And I will also mention that this episode contains mentions of slavery in the United States. Um, in addition to some of the details potentially being upsetting, I will just mention that some of the actual laws from that time period do have names that use outdated terminology. I will obviously avoid using as much outdated terminology as possible, but when I am stating the name of a law in order to be factual, I will be using the actual name, but I will give a warning uh, in those cases before I use it. So let's get into the way the story has been told. John and Lavinia Fisher ran the Six Mile House, as we know, an inn outside Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, the team, uh, the couple was known as a criminal team. Many considered them to be a predecessor to, we've heard it so many times on this show, dear listeners, Bonnie and Clyde. Bonnie and Clyde. Um, the way the story goes, Lavinia would lure in guests with her seductive wiles, 
feed them a home-cooked meal, and then sedate them with tea poisoned with oleander. Then her husband John would rob them, murder them in their sleep, butcher their bodies, and dispose of them in the cellar of the Six Mile House. It's said that it was not until one of the victims escaped, rode into the town, and alerted police to what was happening that their scheme was revealed. It has been alleged that 20 to 30 bodies in various stages of decomposition were found in their cellar. Consequently, Lavinia and John were charged with murder and hanged for their crimes. Um, More of the story. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. Apparently, Lavinia requested to be hanged in her wedding dress as a way to provoke sympathy. As she stood in the gallows, her wedding dress blowing in the wind, she uttered her defiant last words. And this we do know is true. These last words are true. She said, Cease. I will have none of it. Save your words for others that want them. But if you have a message you want to send to hell, give it to me. I'll carry it. Oh, okay. As the noose was placed around her neck, it is said that she leapt to her death to steal the privilege of her execution from the hangman. It's also said that her ghost haunts the old city jail in Charleston, as well as the Unitarian Church Cemetery. Uh, And because of that, this is an often told story on Charleston ghost tours, even today. Um, The story has been handed down generation to generation for obviously over 190 years But I will say over the course of time, the story has been embellished more and more. Obviously, she was labeled the United States' first female serial killer. She's also been called a witch. It's also been said that she was the first woman executed in the United States. I'm going to obviously walk us through all of these things and debunk them as we go. John has also been called a coward that had to be dragged to the gallows. Um, He's been accused of putting all of the blame for their crimes on Lavinia. Uh, But what I have to tell you is there is nothing to prove any of that about him either. So everything I've just told you other than her final words and them running the six mile house, the rest of it, hogwash. There, I said it. Hogwash. Sure. So what are the facts? Well, Lavinia and John Fisher were very much real people. They absolutely ran the six mile house. They were arrested and they were sentenced to death. But there are eyewitness account statements, newspaper articles from the time period, and many other sources with accurate documentation used by Bruce Orr in his book. And what he has uncovered is truly stunning. And I've just got to say, as I said before, I am jazzed to get get into this twisted tale, debunking this legend with a story that I would argue is far more intriguing. So... Um, We are talking, of course, about occurrences taking place in 1819 in the United States. For context, slavery was still a major source of labor in the United States, and Charleston had one of the largest, if not the largest, slave markets in the country. The 1790 Charleston census listed 15,402 white people and 51,585 black people in Charleston. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. There had been yeah, there had been an attempted slave uprising in 1720 and an actual rebellion in 1739 near the Stono River called the Stono River Rebellion. This led to 20 white people getting killed and it was the catalyst that led to stricter laws of the again, this is not my terminology, Negro Act. This act implemented new laws and tougher restrictions on slaves. A big one was tighter curfews. If caught out past curfew without his owner's written permission, 
Uh, the slave would be sent to the sugar house, which was an old sugar warehouse that was turned into a prison and, quote, correctional facility, where mm. they would torture uh, these people into compliance. The des- description of this was just so horrifying. Whippings, um, often they were they would get beaten and whipped so badly that masters or owners, whatever we want to call them, mm-hmm. uh, they knew that they would the the people would be so poorly treated and be so injured that they would often just leave them essentially. They wouldn't even come to collect their <sighs> slaves. Uh, and they would be there for sixty days. and after sixty days, then they could be sold to someone else. I mean, the entire thing is. Oh, truly horrifying. Yeah. Um, but it is important for context, and you will understand why as we kind of move through this story. It is important to remember again what the temperature was at the time. And sure. but also, again, we'll get to it later. In 1819, it's also important to know that the United States had experienced the first major financial crisis the country had ever had. It would become to it would come to be known as the Panic of 1819, and much like the events of the 21st century, bank failure, failures, foreclosures, and unemployment were extremely high. This was largely caused by the end of economic expansion after the War of 1812, which ended in 1815. And I know what you're thinking. Is this really relevant, Lauren? And believe it or not, it actually really is. So I <laughs> don't just gloss over this and think like, why is she offering this? Trust me, it is directly connected. So look alive, dear listeners. Um, the citizens of Charleston were growing concerned with the property values of their homes diminishing rapidly. Uh, there was also civil judgments valuing many hundreds of thousands of dollars hanging over the heads of many other citizens. So there was a panic because... The amount of these judgments that people were owing was beginning to outnumber the amount of currency in circulation. So there was kind of this real panic that it's like, so all this money is owed, but there isn't even that much money in circulation. So how's that going to work? Long story short, not well. Um, (laughs) The city, of course, turns to the state. The state turns to the country, and no one had any answers about how to solve this economic crisis. There was a serious fear that Charleston was going to soon become a city um, that was riddled with crime, thieves, those kinds of things. And to make matters worse, the export business from Charleston was starting to dwindle um, because the ports that were there were often riddled with pirates. Piracy was very prevalent in the waters around this time. Um, Many of the ships, they learned... Pirates learned around this time not to fly their own personal flags or, like, the skull and crossbones. Like, that 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 wasn't done anymore at this point. What they would do, because those would attract attention, what they would do is they would fly flags of certain other countries. So they would take on these allegiances to a certain country and then just fly that flag to be covert. So it would just look mm-hmm. like, oh, that's a, you know, that's a ship from Spain. And, uh, no, just kidding. It's not. It's just a bunch of pirates. Um Another threat coming to Charleston from sea began in June 1819, which was a yellow fever epidemic. Again, (laughs) some of the parallels. Um, (laughs) Oh, boy. I know. This this forced the newly appointed South Carolina governor, Governor John Geddes, to issue a quarantine order against any ships arriving to Charleston. The ships were to drop anchor at Fort Johnson, where they were to be inspected before they could sail into Charleston. The commanding officer at Fort Johnson had to enforce this quarantine using force, if necessary, against any vessel that violated the proclamation. 
Um, this obviously was creating further problems for shipping. So shipping using boats was not going well. Let's put it that way. We've got the pirates. We've got this this virus that's been spreading. It's slowing everything. It's making it dangerous, all of the above. Fortunately, as Christy read in my brilliantly written synopsis, there was <laughs> the wagon trade. So the economy was bad. Exports using ships were dwindling, but farmers, trappers, and traders were flocking to Charleston to sell their products. But the trips were long, and the horses and their owners would become exhausted along the way. For context, it required teams of six to eight horses to pull one of these wagon loads to market. So they needed these stops along the way, which were known as houses or inns, which were stage taverns that dotted the roads on the outskirts of towns and cities. These were places for both the people and the horses to rest and have water. Um, they were designated by the distance from the destination. So, for example, the four-mile house was four miles from Charleston. The five-mile house was five. The six-mile house was six. Sure. So on. For context also, these houses were not what you would think of when we refer to an inn like we would know it today or a tavern like we would know it today. These were more like social centers for the country. Um, the city, the, the inside the city inns and taverns were what we would associate them to be places where you could get food and drink, where you could spend the night, those kinds of things. But these country houses were more like meeting places where, again, you could water sure. your horse and rest and that kind of thing. Um, it was considered to be a pretty great opportunity to be a proprietor of one of these houses. Um, if you treated your customers well, if you took good care of the horses, you could make decent money doing that. And traders often wanted to avoid um, places, staying at places in the city or using places in the city uh, because they were more expensive. So they would take advantage of these inns on the outskirts to do what they needed to do as much as they could. Of course, however, traders were often targets for highway robbery. A full wagon heading into town could be hijacked and the goods could be taken. An empty wagon leaving town would probably suggest that the goods had been stolen and there would be a sum of money inside that wagon with its seller. And so because of this, anyone involved in the wagon trade going to and from Charleston would carry rifles for protection. Um, sure. This frustrated the city, the citizens of Charleston as they feared that news of robberies would deter trade even more and create even more problems. They basically were just like really wanting to hold on to wagon trade because, you know, the exporting via ships was not sure. going well. Um and there was a concern, because Charleston was a bigger city, that there were smaller towns nearby that could intercept these wagons and set up trade in these smaller towns. And then this would kind of deter robbers from going to those smaller places so people could kind of come in and get out uh, and, you know, sell their stuff and get out before getting robbed, as opposed to coming into the big city where you're more of a target. So sure. there was concern that from the citizens of Charleston that, oh my gosh, are we going to start losing business to these smaller towns. Because of all of this, on February 16th, 1819, an armed mob set out from Charleston to the Five Mile House to take matters into their own hands. They set forth under something called Lynch's Law, which is basically taking their own authority and no other authority at all to do as they saw fit. Lynch's Law, side note. The term Lynch's Law was used as early as 1782. Charles Lynch, a prominent Virginian, made his own laws and terms when he was suppressing a suspected loyalist uprising during the Revolutionary War in 1780. Suspects were given a trial at an informal court, 
Sentences were handed down, including property seizure, whippings, forced enrollment into the military, and coerced pledges of allegiance. Um, all of these actions, which were illegitimate, this was just a man who decided to make his own laws and rules and punish people with them, they uh -huh. were legitimized retroactively by the Virginia General Assembly in 1782. So that's also amazing. He was like, he just did what he wanted to do. And then they were like, yeah, no, no worries. All that, all that shit you did. Yeah. Justified. Yeah. I don't, so, I don't care for that. No. <laughs> no. So that's, that's one theory about where the term Lynch's law came from. Another theory is that it came from a man named Captain William Lynch in 1811 and he explained that the term came from a 1780 compact signed by him and his neighbors in Pittsylvania, not Pennsylvania, Pittsylvania, Pittsylvania County, Virginia. And this allowed them to uphold their own brand of law outside of legal authority. So those are the two kind of theories about where it started. Either way, basically, it is just mob justice. And the state of South Carolina did eventually create laws against lynching. Um... I, also, for context, because I, people have probably heard the term lynching and have preconceived notion of what that is, lynching in the first degree is a felony that deals with the death of a person at the hands of a mob. Lynching in the second degree, also a felony, but it's an act of violence by a mob where death doesn't occur. So lynching in the first degree, um, we definitely can remember, uh, you know, there's lots of examples of that in the past sure. in, in the South. But it's often not used if a murder charge makes more sense. But second-degree lynching is actually still used within that state, sometimes in cases of gang violence, which is interesting. So, back to the case. A gang of robbers had allegedly set up shop outside of Charleston. And since none of the victims of these alleged robbers could identify them, this lynch mob set out to find the group, disband them, and drive them away from the inns in the area. They allegedly had permission from the owners of several smaller houses in the area to do what they needed to do. But again, I, I, permission, like I, these, these people are just taking the law into their own hands. They, it's, it's like saying like, oh, well, we decided to go and attack these other people. And my neighbors said it was okay. It's like, well, they're not lawmakers. They're not police. Like, it's, you're just, you're still just going. It's like a, you know, the quintessential yeah. like pitchforks and and uh, burning mm. torches, you know what I mean? So the Charleston newspaper called The Courier pointed out that this mob went to locate a group that they had no way to identify. And I think that's really interesting to note because there was rumors of these robberies. We, they had heard about these robberies. They were worried that the robberies might get worse. And sure. then just out of nowhere, they were like, let's go. We're going to go find that group of robbers. Again, this is all important to just note as we sure. continue to talk about this. So they arrived at the Five Mile House and found a small group gathered who they ordered to leave. They gave the people 15 minutes. When they failed to comply, the lynch mob set fire to the building. The Five Mile House quickly burned to the ground and was completely destroyed. They then continued on, the lynch mob, to the Six Mile House. And they ordered the people in that house to vacate they decided to listen, which is probably because they could still see the smoke and ash in the air of the burning five-mile house a mile away. So they did leave the house. And once the house was empty, the mob placed a young man inside to watch over the property called David Ross. The, the rest of the mob then went back to Charleston. 
Very pleased that they had driven out the occupants of both of these inns, their accounts of their actions were reported in the Charleston Courier on February 20th, 1819. So, after the mob gets back to Charleston, some of the people that had been vacated from the Six Mile House returned back to the inn where they found this David Ross sitting in the house, just guarding it, quote-unquote. Obviously, an altercation ensued. He was attacked, but he managed to get away. He made his way back to Charleston, and he did give a sworn affidavit to authorities on February 20th, 1819. I will read some of that affidavit, which uh, Bruce Orr, in his book, he actually has a copy of it printed in there, which is amazing. All of these wow. historical documents, it's, it's something. So David Ross said, Hayward, we'll get into who these people are in a second. Hayward cursed him, collared him violently, and pushed him out of doors. Uh, David Ross then again reentered the house and asked to take away a few articles that belonged to him. Hayward put his hand into his bosom and said, You damned infernal rascal. If you lay your hand on anything, I will blow your brains out. By this time, Fisher and his wife Lavinia Fisher came up with two other men whose names are unknown to him. That Lavinia Fisher laid violent hands upon him, choked, and boxed his head through a pane of window glass. Hayward and Fisher beat him unmercifully with loaded whips. I'll explain those in a minute. Aided and assisted by two other men whose names are unknown to him. There was also another woman who aided an assistant. David Ross leapt out of the piazza and crossed the road through the woods. Then he got to the four-mile house. Just as he entered the woods, they fired at him. Fisher exclaimed several times, You damned infernal rascal, if I ever catch you, I will give you a hundred lashes. So that's kind of the bulk of what his affidavit said. But there's an amendment that was added below the judge's signature saying, And deponent meaning David Ross, doth believe that James McElroy was one of the above party concerned in the nefarious transactions above mentioned. This is important, again, to remember as we're growing. Um, so basically, David Ross has given this sworn statement where it's like, there was a bunch of people there and I didn't know them, but I definitely knew William Hayward, John and Lavinia Fisher. And then later on, someone added to this document, oh, and he thinks James McElroy as well. Again, just note it. So as David Ross was making his way back into Charleston after this attack at the Six Mile House, a trader named John Peoples was making his way out of Charleston Two hours after David Ross had been attacked, John Peoples stopped at the Six Mile House to water his horses. He was traveling with a young boy, and they were watering the horses, when Peoples alleged that he was attacked and robbed. Here is an excerpt from his affidavit that he provided to authorities when he went back to Charleston. John Peoples was returning home from town to his residence in the country when he stopped near the forks of the road about six miles from town to water his horse, that whilst his horses were watering, a man came out of the six-mile house and told a boy who was with him that he must give him his bucket as he wanted to water his horse. The boy refused to give him the bucket, and immediately nine or ten persons, among them a tall, stout woman, came out of the same house armed with clubs, guns, and pistols, and immediately made a violent assault on him beating him with sticks and with their guns, and several times they flashed their pistols at him. The woman appeared to be the most active in beating him, cutting him over the head and eyes with a stick. After a while, they left him and re-entered the same house. The deponent proceeded about 200 yards on the road when two of the same men came up to him on horseback, stopped his wagon, and said to him they would kill him. 
Then they searched his pocket, took out his pocketbook, which contained his money amounting to between $35 and $40, and then rode back towards the Six Mile House. The deponent doth not know the names of those persons, but he hath just cause to believe that among them was William Hayward, John Fisher, his wife Lavinia Fisher, Joseph Roberts, and John Andrews. Now, his affidavit was written in three different kinds of handwriting, and his name was spelled both P-E-E-P-L-E-S and P-E-O-P-L-E-S, but it was signed with the second spelling. And included on the affidavit is a list. Again, there is pictures of these that I will try and uh, get clear copies of to put on our, our social accounts. Um, this list is, is headed Six Mile Horseman, and then it has the following names. John Fisher, Lavinia Fisher, William Hayward, Joseph Roberts, William Andrews, Seth Young, James McElroy, John Smith, F. Davis, James Sterrett. Uh, what I love is that in the book, uh, Bruce Orr referred to the list as a side note. And that just felt like it was meant for us. That is nice. So there's no documented arrest of F. Davis. And it appears that these names were added to this affidavit, just as James McElroy's name had been added to David Ross's affidavit. Both affidavits were sworn at the same time by the same judge. So the police took them at the same time to the same judge to have this all done. And it appears like these names were added after that. So now that there are two victims, David Ross and John Peoples, the sheriff decided it was time to take action. The Charleston Courier newspaper reported that the sheriff, Colonel Nathaniel Green Cleary, set out to the Six Mile House with a fairly large, quote, party of gentlemen. Sounds to me like another mob. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Upon surrounding the house, the occupants surrendered with no fight even though they were well-armed with 10 to 12 muskets and a keg of gunpowder. They were then all taken into custody. Some reports say that John Fisher wanted to surrender rather than risk Lavinia's safety. Others say that the large group surrounding the house made resistance feel futile. Regardless, John and Lavinia Fisher, James McElroy, Seth Young, and Jane Howard were loaded into the paddy wagon and taken to the city jail. The sheriff's group then set fire to the Six Mile House, and it was burned to the ground. Jesus. No one was allowed to remove anything. I believe it, it's, it's, the dates here are a little confusing because those affidavits were sworn on February 20th. But the original incident happened February 16th. And there's other reports that said that they, that John and Lavinia Fisher were arrested February 18th. So there's a weird, if they were arrested February 18th, and they, they didn't have those affidavits signed by a judge until the 20th. Interesting. Isn't it? Uh-huh. So, um, we know that the sheriff had those five suspects, as well as William Hayward, in custody by Monday morning, February 22nd. And by the afternoon of the 22nd, James Sterrett had also been arrested. So, at this point, six people. So... In David Ross's affidavit, he said he couldn't identify many of the people present except for John and Lavinia Fisher, who ran the Six Mile House, and William Hayward, who we know ran the Five Mile House. On that same day, February 20th, John Peoples went to the police and said he didn't know the names of the people who attacked him. But the affidavit said that he had just cause to believe that among them 
was that list. William Hayward, John Fisher, Lavinia Fisher, Joseph Roberts, and John Andrews. What is the just cause? And what kind of police or detective work was being done between when those affidavits were or weren't taken and those six suspects being in custody by Monday morning? Because I, what I don't understand, again, is like, it just feels to me like like this was all a setup. To me, it just feels like, well, let's just make a list of the people that we know were out there, people that were known to police, um, and then just say that they were a part of this. And wouldn't you know, many of the six-mile offenders did have criminal histories. So hmm. you see where this is going. Mm-hmm. By the end of the week, the arrests of John Smith and Joseph Roberts would bring the six-mile gang's total to nine. They were all committed to jail. The Six Mile Gang's trial was set for May in the Court of Sessions. William Andrews and F. Davis were never arrested. On March 26, 1819, one final man was arrested in connection with the Six Mile Gang. Renee Jacobs was alleged to be a part of the gang um, that had been broken up near the Five Mile House. This arrest brought the total to 10 in custody and two at large, 12 being associated with the gang in total. So John Peoples was tasked with identifying the subjects, the sorry, the suspects. So Sheriff Colonel Cleary arranged a lineup of sorts. He claims that there was 20 to 30 witnesses present to ensure that the identification process wasn't tainted and that John Peoples wouldn't be swayed in any way. One by one, prisoners were brought down to be identified by Peoples, and this will come back into play later. But... This is basically how, because he saw these people, but he, he again, didn't name them. But he was under just, he had due cause to believe it was these other people. Again, this mm-hmm. will all come back. Mm-hmm. So like I said, many of the Six Mile Gang members had a criminal history. Renee Jacobs had been re- arrested for a robbery, which uh, is how he was actually brought in for his association with this crime. He was also accused of having been a land privateersman and a former sea pirate turned land pirate. Because that's a thing. Of course. James Sterrett was a familiar offender in the city of Charleston. Twelve months prior to this arrest, he had received a branding for a larceny charge. Colonial punishment side note. Yes, you heard me correctly. James Sterrett had been branded as a punishment for a crime. This was a common punishment at that time. It was also used as an identifier in marking a person as an offender. For example, around this same time, a man named Michael Tuohy was branded with the letter M on the palm of his hand as he had been convicted of manslaughter. And for context, manslaughter, killing someone, was a punish- would, would get a punishment of being branded. But an offense of, trigger warning, outdated terminology, Negro stealing would get you hanged. So again, huh. we're seeing what the value system was sure. at this time. Another com- common punishment of this time was croppings. Part of a person's ear or nose would be cut off or cropped as a punishment for a crime they committed. This would be harsh evidence all over your face for everyone to see that you had committed a prior crime. Public whippings or lashings were also used. Earlier, I did mention loaded whips, and I said I would get back to it, and I don't forget. I don't forget. So here I am getting back to it. Basically, loaded whips, which were commonly used during this time, are whips that have a small lead shot sewn into it to add weight as it swung. So basically, it gives you the flexibility of a whip. Sure. So it'll move, but the force of being hit with a steel rod. And this, accompanied with the lacerating effects of braided leather, proved to be quite 
horrific. Many prisoners who received this treatment were then dragged back to their prison cells through the urine and feces-soaked wood shavings that covered the floor of the jail and were then left to die. Yes, dear listeners, much like a hamster cage, the jail floor was covered in wood chips that the prisoners were meant to use as bedding and as their toilets. They were changed every so often, but very rarely. So they would get these terrible whippings, have open wounds, and then get exposed to human waste, causing infection and disease. And if a prisoner did die, as many did, there was no rush to move the bodies. It was not unusual unusual for a corpse to reach an advanced phase of decomposition before being removed from the jail. This served as a way to remind other prisoners to control themselves in order to avoid a punishment that could lead them finding a similar fate. Often, prisoners would take their own lives. So, back to the Six Mile Offenders' criminal histories. John Fisher, of course Lavinia's husband, who was 28 at the time, had once been sentenced to receive 30 lashes for theft, but he had been pardoned by the governor of the state on the condition that he not only leave Charleston, but all of South Carolina. So that's interesting, too, because he was in South Carolina when he got arrested this time. So I don't know. I don't know what that means. Um, Joseph Roberts was missing part of his ear and had apparently received this punishment, but it's unknown for what. He had previously escaped the Charleston jail in 1817, and he had also escaped from jail in Savannah, Georgia before. In 1815, William Hayward, along with a female accomplice, were indicted for assault and robbery. He was accused of assaulting a woman named Jane Francis, stripping the clothes from her back and robbing her husband. In 1816, he and others were indicted for assaulting three men, including a man named Albert Huger. And in 1816, he was also found guilty of perjury. According to the Charleston Courier, William Hayward was described as being one of the gang leaders. But as mentioned before, he was the proprietor of the Five Mile House. But it should also be noted that the terms Five Mile Gang and Six Mile Gang were referring to this whole same group of people. Um, it, they were, it was interchangeable at the time. Obviously, again, John and Lavinia being the Six Mile Inn proprietors. On March 23rd, 1819, of the 12 people associated with the group, only four of them remained in jail. And only those four actually made it before the judge. This was John and Lavinia Fisher, William Hayward, and Joseph Roberts. They were brought up on a writ of habeas corpus in front of 65-year-old Judge Elihu Hall Bay. Judge Bay was described as mostly deaf, stuttering, crotchety, constantly repeating himself. Um, This was supposed to be a hearing to establish whether there was enough cause and legal authority to detain the four of them as prisoners, and Judge Bay determined that there was. Bond was set, and while the Fishers returned to jail— Joseph Roberts and William Hayward did post bail. On March 25th, two days later, Joseph Roberts was rearrested and returned to jail after threatening the life of a butcher. William Hayward's bail had been posted by two men, Stephen Moore and Richard Hayward. They both paid $250 each, which would be around um, $5,700 U.S. dollars by 2022 terms. Wow, okay. Yeah. After being freed... Hayward allegedly immediately left the city. He was scheduled to appear in court on May 10th, 1819, as he had been indicted for the assault on David Ross, but he did not return for that hearing. James McElroy, Seth Young, Jane Howard, John Smith, Joseph Roberts, Renee Jacobs, and James Sterrett, 
who had all also been arrested for this crime in February and March, did not appear in front of Judge Bay, and it is unclear to me why or how they had been cleared, when they were released, did they have escape? It, they just kind of disappeared from the story. So it's interesting to me that they were rounding up all these bad guys, all these robbers. Yeah. But then they really just kind of focused in on some very specific people. Wonder if there's right. a reason. Oh. We'll get to that in a bit. For now, the trial. May 10th, 1819, the case was heard before a jury, which was similar to what a grand jury would be known as by today's standards. For context, today, a grand jury listens to the prosecutor and witnesses and then votes in secret on whether they believe there is enough evidence to charge a person with a crime. So basically, they're just determining if if there should be a, a trial, basically. Um, in this case, the jury did believe that sufficient probable cause existed to put the defendants on trial for the crimes they were accused of. The Fishers were indicted for assault with intent to murder and also common assault for the attack on David Ross. That was the only crime reviewed at this time. William Hayward was on the run. Joseph Roberts was also just no longer considered in these proceedings. We don't know why. Huh. He had pled guilty to the assault in regards to the butcher that he had done, uh, that he had threatened. And so he was going to prison for a year for that. And he was also fined $1,000, which would be approximately $23,000 in 2022 numbers. Wow. Now, James McElroy's name resurfaced, and he, along with Hayward, were also indicted for this crime. From court documents, the following men were listed as the jurors in this case. The foreman was William Hart. Then there's Luke Bowes, William Whelan, David Murray, J.S. Packer, William Owens, I. Jaspiel, William Matthews, James Fogarty, Joseph Tyler, William Brisbane, Caleb Walker, Peter Gillard, John Davis, and John Wilson. Not no much is known about them. Matthews was a planter. Tyler was a merchant. Walker was a carpenter. But John Wilson was the state engineer. And according to the Office of the State Engineer for South Carolina, the responsibility of this office is for providing construction procurement procedures and training, approvals, and assistance on state construction projects. So it seems a little interesting that a person with this level of responsibility, the responsibility of state improvement projects, would be sitting on this kind of jury. In January through March of that year, the Charleston Courier reported that John Wilson had been involved in negotiations to approve waterway access to the city for larger steamships traveling from the North Carolina mountain passes, and according to a March 9, 1819 article, negotiations were to resume in May regarding issues in contracts and funding. So one could speculate that John Wilson would not have had a lot of time to sit on that jury if he was involved in all of those negotiations that were going on in the same time. Unless right. the case somehow connected to his work. So John and Lavinia Fisher, William Hayward, and James McElroy are all indicted for assault with intent to murder and common assault for the attack on David Ross. The four were said to have wielded, pointed, and fired a loaded weapon at David Ross and had the intent to kill him. The document lists all the participants but doesn't say who held the weapon or who pulled the trigger. It also states that Ross was beaten, wounded, mistreated, and feared for his life. On May 27, 1819, the case was heard in court. 
James McElroy had been removed from the indictment at this point. Again, I don't know why. He was on it. He was off it. He was on it. He was off it. His name is literally scratched out on this document. Weird. We don't know. So with him taken off, William Hayward still on the run, John and Lavinia Fisher are the only two from the original 12 left to face these charges. Their lawyer was a man named John Davis Heath, and he entered a not guilty plea on their behalf. The prosecution was being tried by South Carolina Attorney General Robert Young Hayne. Hayne was known as an excellent speaker, and while he was less experienced than Heath, he had just gotten a conviction in a murder case, and the convicted killer was scheduled to be executed by hanging the next day after the Fisher's trial, May 28, 1819. So many, many citizens attended John and Lavinia's trial because they were interested to hear Hayne talk, and they were also curious to see if he was going to get a back-to-back conviction. Would sure. he get? Th- yes. Would he get the conviction? Well, we're going to find out after the break. Oh, well, 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 you heard the lady. Grab a drink, maybe a snack, and we'll be right back with more on Lavinia Fisher on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to True Crime and Cocktails. Before the break, Lauren was historically kicking ass and giving us a beautifully crafted, time-warped lesson. So Lauren, to quote Huey Lewis... Let's go back in time. Thank you for that. No problem. <laughs> so before the break, I, I did tease, would South Carolina Attorney General Robert Young Hayne get another conviction in the John and Lavinia Fisher case? And the answer was he would. They were found guilty for the crimes against David Ross, as was William Hayward in absence. On June 2nd, 1819, John and Lavinia were brought before Judge Charles Jones Colcock for sentencing. The Fisher's lawyer, uh, Heath, presented a motion for a new trial at the Constitutional Court. The Constitutional Court is now known, of course, as the Court of Appeals. Judge Colcock did not object, but that court wouldn't meet again until January 1820, so the Fishers were sent back to jail for a long wait And as I've alluded to, it wasn't a pleasant place, that jail. Yeah. Meanwhile, William Hayward made it to Columbia, South Carolina. He was now a fugitive that had failed to appear in court. He checked in at a hotel in Columbia where he was recognized by a man who did rat him out to the police. 
He was arrested and detained until he could be brought back to Charleston to stand trial. The Columbia State Gazette reported that Hayward had two slaves with him, one male and one female. The male said they had been stolen by Hayward, but he had difficulty pronouncing his master's name. And since no one knew the name, there was no proof that they weren't Hayward's. Uh, so that was just kind of dropped. Hayward wrote a letter to the City Gazette upon his arrival back. He was trying to separate himself from the Fishers. He claimed to only know John Fisher as someone who had been a customer in his store. Um, Still, he did indicate that John Fisher had, quote, bought what he paid for. So at least he didn't try to inaccurately paint him as a thief or something to make himself look better, but he was basically trying to say, we're not close friends. Like, yeah, I knew of him, but, you know, we weren't buds. John and Lavinia Fisher were housed in a single cell in the jail, separated from the general population. The cell was on the lowest level and was generally used as an isolation cell. There was very little light or airflow in their cell, and records indicate that Lavinia pled with Sheriff Cleary, and she and John were eventually moved to a less secure part of the jail. Um, This area was the debtor's prison. Here, debtors were held and used to manufacture coffins. Um, This was in an upper level of the jail, and the Fishers were able to move freely around a larger cell there. Here, they were reunited with Joseph Roberts, who was serving his one-year sentence for that butcher assault he had made. So, on Monday, September 13th, 1819, John Fisher and Joseph Roberts created a hole under one of the windows and lowered themselves down with blankets they had tied together. Joseph went first, then John, and as John lowered himself to the ground, the blankets broke, causing him to fall around 20 feet to the ground. This also meant Lavinia was unable to escape with them. John and Joseph escaped into the darkness, um, and their escape was not noticed until the next day. Two days later, on September 15th, the Charleston Courier ran an article about the escape, including a proclamation from Governor Geddes offering a $500 reward, which would be around $11,500 in 2022 U.S. for the capture of John Fisher. And while Joseph Roberts was mentioned as being with John, there was no reward being offered for Joseph Roberts, even though this was his third time escaping from a prison. And he was currently serving a one-year sentence. No reward for him. So why is it so important for them to have John Fisher in jail? Interesting. Well, we're going to get there. We're going to speculate. Mm. It's believed that John had planned to board a schooner at the Charleston Harbor and sail to Cuba, but that he would not leave Lavinia. So he and Joseph stayed in the area trying to figure out a way to rescue her. Shortly after their escape, a grocer named William Bull was working late hours at his store on the South Bay. He noticed outside two men in the dark paddling towards the shore in a small canoe. One entered Bull's store and the other disappeared. The customer bought a few things, but Bull was suspicious of him, so secretly followed him when he left and watched him crawl under an overturned boat on the wharf. Bull had a co-worker watch over the boat while he alerted the authorities. John Fisher and Joseph Roberts were re-arrested. The Charleston Courier reported about all of this on September 16, 1819. Apparently, they were found with a number of gold pieces and watches that were found um, when they were caught. It's believed that they could have been trying to cobble together a bribe to get Lavinia out of jail. There had been another prisoner who escaped from prison not long before them, and that prisoner's brother had paid a guard $600, two watches, and some gold coins. So it does feel like it's more than possible that that was what their plan was. Wow. Mm. 
So, January 17th, 1820, John and Lavinia appear before the Constitutional Court. The next day, it's reported that they were convicted of highway robbery. I will remind you, highway robbery. I thought they were charged with assault and the att- with the attempt to murder and common assault for the attack on David Ross. That is correct. But they were sentenced to be hanged on Friday, February 4th, 1820 for the crime of highway robbery. So even though the charge and the conviction were for assault with the intent to murder and common assault, they were sentenced for highway robbery. And that highway robbery was the one committed on John Peoples, not the crime about David Ross at all. So their appeal in the David Ross case had been rejected at this hearing. But in that same hearing, they were sentenced to death for a crime against a different victim that they had never been tried for. There was no trial. They'd never been charged, they'd never been tried, and they'd never been convicted. But they sure did get sentenced to death for it. Okay. In all of Bruce Orr's research in his book, there was nothing he could find that showed that they were ever formally charged for any crime against John Peoples. Oh my god. So... They were set to be hanged February 4th, 1820. February 4th being my birthday, not something I want to associate it with. Regardless, Governor Geddes did grant them a respite in the execution until Friday, February 18th, after the Fishers petitioned him along with several prominent citizens and clergymen. They were basically all asking for the Fishers to have a little more time to repent and prepare to meet their God. Um, Many clergy members visited John Lavinia during this time. The idea is to prepare their physical bodies for the execution and their souls for the afterlife. One of the the people who visited them was Reverend Dr. Richard Furman. Uh, It's said that he found John easier to reach than Lavinia. Lavinia was obsessed with getting a pardon. Any small noise would make her jump, assuming the guards were coming to give her news that she had been pardoned. And when that wouldn't be the case... She would launch into rants full of profanity, um, cursing, cursing against God, uh, causing the reverend to kind of have to start his work over with her. Um, Lavinia continually professed her innocence. She also didn't think that the governor would go through with hanging a woman. She really believed she was going to get exonerated. But some sources speculated that the only reason that the governor granted them that two-week respite was not because he cared about giving them this time with these religious men, it was because it conflicted with something called race week, which is basically a giant horse race. And he didn't want to split the crowd because he knew that hanging a woman would draw a really big crowd to Charleston, which would bring in a lot of money. And we know that times were tough. So by doing this, there was two events to bring revenue into town. Whether or not that's true... It does seem like it's a pretty big coincidence. Mm. Um, Another possibility of that two-week delay could be that their guilt was legitimately being called into question because during that time, another man confessed to the crime. His confession was apparently quite compelling. He knew the exact time and place of the robbery, the exact amount of money that had been taken, and many other key elements of the crime. However, when the man was re-examined, his statements became conflicting, and his sanity was called into question, so that was dismissed. I I find that also very convenient, that he had all this information that there was no way of him being able to know, 
like stuff that hadn't been in the papers. But then they were like, oh, we talked to him again and he seemed crazy. Never mind. This is unbelievably sketchy. Oh, and I don't care for it. (laughs) Yeah. And believe me, it gets wilder. Mm. So the people of Charleston started to back the Fishers. The fashionable ladies of Charleston were especially supportive as they felt the execution of a white woman could set precedent for other white women to be included under the umbrella of colonial law. They put together their own petitions and they submitted them for the governor to take a look at, but he avoided all of them. In fact, Governor Geddes left town around this time, seeming to just want to avoid all the chaos that was coming along with this case. Mm -hmm. So he was happy to sign off on having these people killed, but didn't really want to be around to have to deal with any of the fallout. Charleston lawyer John Blake White published an essay in 1834 called Essays on Capital Punishment. In it, he describes the 1820 execution of the Fishers in great detail. He writes that the night before the execution, on February 18, 1820, he was called to the city jail on professional business. The jail took him through the j- sorry, the jailer took him through the jail to the room where the coffins were kept with the two that had been picked out for the two of them. Then the jailer took him to the cell that housed the hangman because apparently the hangman had to be confined to jail to sober him up prior to any execution. It sounds like he was a very troubled uh, man who was possibly trying to medicate himself from the reality of all of the people that he had executed over the years and had turned to uh, a substance, in this case alcohol, The only time he would be sober would be the days that they would lock him up in jail surrounding the lead up to an execution. According to White's essay, the hangman demanded liquor repeatedly in the short time that he was around him and he was refused. But the jailer did reassure him that if the execution was, quote, done well, he would be rewarded with as much alcohol as he wanted. This made the man smile. It's noted that the hangman had no family ties and was a solitary individual. He was also described by White as haggard, pale, and emaciated. On the day of the execution, White returned to the jail at the request of the newly elected sheriff, Francis G. Mm-hmm, I'm so sorry. Delessian, Delessian? We're going to call him Sheriff Francis. <laughs> <laughs> I get that. I get that. White says that he could hear a minister talking to the Fishers about their salvation. There was loud uh, lamentations. My God, I'm losing words. There was sighs, sobs, and moans, followed by silence, and then, quote, unnerving frantic shrieks. White headed to the lobby to wait, where he saw the hangman again. The hangman was arranging his ropes and nooses, calculating the proper lengths of the ropes. If the rope was too long, the person would not have their neck broken. They would just strangle to death. If it was too short, the head of the person would be decapitated and could possibly fly through the air into the crowd, which would be unseemly. Um, Either of those events would mean that this was a, quote, poorly performed execution and the hangman's payment of alcohol would be denied to him. Soon a door opened and the fishers were brought in. When Lavinia saw the hangman, she screamed in terror. Her cry, quote, chilled every heart with horror. The fishers had, had bought loose white garments to wear over their clothes. They threw themselves into each other's arms in a final goodbye that was, quote, agonizing to behold. Uh-huh. Lavinia begged and pleaded with the hangman, but White described him as cold and indifferent. He adjusted his cords and restrained the fishers. 
White said that the hangman took charge of the couple and never left them for a second. At one point, he describes the executioner as debased. The tone overall in this essay was of nothing but sheer pity and sadness for the Fishers. White said that they descended the stairs of the jail arm in arm to a coach waiting at the prison door. The procession was flanked by cavalry. A huge crowd had formed because, of course, a woman was being executed and everybody wanted to see that. That, along with the fact that the citizens of Charleston, who had grown quite a fondness for the Fishers, made um, made the police believe that military presence was necessary to try and deter anyone from making a rescue attempt of the couple. White explains that he never forgot the horrible look of despair that covered John Fisher's face when they pulled up to the execution site. Apparently, when he first saw the gallows, the reality of the situation really sunk in for him. He allegedly turned very pale, his eyes closed, and a tremor made his body shake. He grabbed Lavinia, pulled her towards him. Then, as they exited the carriage with the hangman, John climbed the scaffold and looked out to the crowd and then back at Lavinia, who flat out refused to to climb the scaffold. She just wouldn't do it. She started calling out to the crowd to rescue her. She started stretching her shaking arms as far as her restraints would let her. One minute, she would be professing her innocence, going on that a woman shouldn't be hanged. The next, she would start cursing and stomping her feet and damning Governor Geddes to hell for hanging a woman. White says that the crowd was silent as Lavinia shrieked, swore, and pled for their help. John tenderly pled with Lavinia to make peace with God. She didn't listen. The reverend present um, was trying to prepare Lavinia for death, trying to get her to repent. And then she spoke those words that went down in Charleston history, which now, when we have all of this backstory, suddenly take on this other meaning when she says, and I quote, cease, I will have none of it. Save your words for others that want them, but if you have a message you want to send to hell, give it to me, I'll carry it. So again, it's 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 a it's a much different context to those words now that you know sure. what her mindset was. That it wasn't that she was this cold, you know, cold-blooded serial killer who was like, I'm a badass and I'm going to hell. This is a woman who's literally like, I cannot believe what's happening to me right now. Yeah. And wanted and to be like, in denial. You're going to go to hell for what you've done to me. I'll just make sure they're ready for you. I'll meet you there. Exactly. Yeah. Other witnesses said that Lavinia's ravings were, quote, terrible, and John's efforts to soothe her and encourage her to repent were, quote, most touching. Another witness, known only as G.S., wrote to a friend that John had tried to console his wife and encourage her to meet death with fortitude and a humble reliance on the goodness and mercy of heaven. It was one other quote I really liked was Lavinia exhibited a great unwillingness to die, to which I say, good for her. Good for her. She just really believed she was going to be pardoned. Even at this point, even at the the gallows, she she believed that it was going to happen. Apparently, the sheriff chose this moment to read a written document in front of them. So he pulled out this paper. Lavinia obviously believed that that was her written pardon. The sheriff in this moment realizes what was happening. So he folds up the letter and then assures her that, no, she would absolutely not be getting a pardon and that she was absolutely going to die. And that is apparently where her raving stopped. And she started to call upon heaven to have mercy on her, to let her live. She pled with God. And in those final moments, she did make peace 
Um, as again, I think that's a thing of the times also. Um, the witness GS stated that the clergyman addressing God on her behalf and on John's behalf was so overcome with emotion that he could barely speak at this point. The pastor, who some believe was Reverend Furman, uh, was openly weeping. And I don't think that that was typical of of these kinds of uh, <laughs> shows, for lack of a better term. Sure. Um, John Fisher then addressed the crowd, begging for the forgiveness of those he had ever offended. He forgave his accusers, and he proclaimed he and Lavinia's innocence. He had written a letter to the attending reverend that was dated the day, date of the execution, and it was read aloud to the crowd. The letter was basically thanking the reverend for his help in teaching him about God in the time leading up to the execution, and it also staunchly proclaims his innocence. The Charleston Courier and the Charleston Gazette ran stories about John's final proclamation of innocence. The Gazette even published the letter in whole. John Blake White wrote that while all of this was happening, the hangman was poised on a ladder, quote, hovering like a vampire over the couple, <sighs> adjusting the ropes. In her last moments, Lavinia looked out at the crowd. The witness GS says it was a look of grief, not guilt, on her face. Eventually, serenity came upon her, and a smile even formed on her face. At this time, the hangman descended the ladder and placed caps over the fishers' faces. They stood trembling for a moment longer until the sheriff gave a private signal and the platform gave way. They dropped, and all was silent and still, except for the loose white garments fluttering in the breeze. Lavinia died instantly without a struggle or a groan, but it was many minutes before John stopped struggling. Some oh. accounts say it was upwards of 17 minutes. Oh my God. His neck didn't break, so he was strangled to death. There is a theory, because the placement of the knot is apparently was apparently paramount to ensuring that the ne neck would snap, and the placement sure. of the knot on John's neck was not in the right place. Mm -hmm. which is what they discovered after the fact. And so there is a theory that the hangman did this deliberately so that he would have a painful death. Whereas with Lavinia, her neck broke right away. Um, so it's possible he had pity for her because she was a woman. It's hard to say. Uh, but like with all hangings, they would le let the bodies hang there for a usual amount of time. I think it was an hour. And then the bodies are taken down and taken to Potter's Field where they were buried. John Fisher was 29. Lavinia Fisher was 28. Jesus. On June 6, 1820, William Hayward was denied a new trial at the Constitutional Court and was sentenced to death by a Judge Gant. His execution was set for June 30, 1820, but he was also given a respite from the governor to make peace with God. On August 11, 1820, at 1 p.m., he was hanged. He also went to his death proclaiming his innocence. He left behind a wife and three children, all under the age of four. Oh, Lavinia Fisher has incorrectly been labeled as the first woman hanged for murder within the United States. But Bruce Orr credits Margaret Hatch with that title as she had been hanged for murder on June 24, 1633. But, wow, from my research, the first woman ever hanged for murder in the United States was a woman named Jane Champion who was hanged in 1632. Jane had a brief affair and got pregnant. She hid her pregnancy, and when the baby was born, she and her husband killed the newborn because it was an illegitimate child. Oh. Similarly, Margaret Hatch killed an illegitimate infant, which is the murder that she was hanged for. Now, Margaret pretended to be pregnant again at the time of her execution so that she could maybe avoid getting hanged, 
but mm-hmm. a jury of matrons examined her and determined she was not pregnant, so they hanged her anyway. Um, the next hanging of a woman was December 6th, 1638. A woman named Dorothy Talby was hanged in Salem, Massachusetts for the murder of her infant daughter named Difficulty. Then, yeah. (laughs) Then in the fall of 1648, 32-year-old Alice Martin Clark Bishop was hanged at Plymouth, Massachusetts for stabbing to death her four-year-old daughter, Martha. Between 1632 and 2020, a total of about 538 American women have been executed. For context, in the same period, over 19,500 men have been executed in the U.S. at the time. Yes. But now we get to the intrigue. So, John Fisher publicly blamed someone for he and Lavinia being falsely accused for these crimes. A series of letters were published in the Charleston Courier on February 22nd, 1820. The author of two of them and the subject of all of the letters was Sheriff Colonel Nathaniel Green Cleary. The contents of the letters were him addressing the accusations that John Fisher made about him wrongly accusing John and Lavinia of their crimes. John alleged that Cleary identified him and Lavinia by name to John Peoples when they were conducting the lineup in the jail. This allowed John Peoples to identify them as his robbers. We know now that Peoples was from Georgia, and he would not have known any of these people from by name. At the time of the lineup, Peoples was concealed behind a curtain and watched as each person was brought down to be identified. John Fisher claims that Sheriff Cleary verbally named him and Lavinia in front of Peoples. And we will remember, there was that list of names on Peoples' affidavit. Well, that was provided to Peoples that day. So he had that with him. Almost as though he was being told who to name. Who to identify. So we also need to remember that that list was written in a different handwriting from the statement that the handwriting that the statement was written in. So it does feel plausible that peoples could have been told, we're going to tell you the names of the people that you're going to say did this to you. Right. But I know what you're thinking. Why would the sheriff do that? Well, there's a couple things that could have factored in. The first being, the sheriff was up for re-election at the time. Good God. Okay. The initial attack on the Five Mile House was done by a lynch mob. Mob justice does not exactly make it seem like there's a lot of confidence in a sheriff. So people taking, you know, the law into their own hands does not exactly a vote of confidence make. Sheriff Cleary was obligated to act on this or that could cost him the election in and of itself. And then the second thing going on. President James Monroe was making a southern tour, and Charleston was a point of interest for him. He was going to be visiting there by the end of April. Governor Geddes did not want the embarrassment of robberies or armed lynch mobs interfering with the president's visit. The president was looking at potential places to build a grand naval depot. Burroughs Bay in Virginia was a possibility for this, and Charleston, who which was in constant competition with Savannah, Georgia, um also was a spot that could have been a contender for this naval base. And Governor Geddes wanted that naval base in Charleston. So, as we know, 
Many of the Six Mile gang members had previously spent time in jail and were known to the sheriff. It is possible that he saw this as an opportunity to, quote, clean up the streets prior to the president's visit by rounding up these usual suspects. That could be one possible reason why 12 people were named and 10 were arrested. And then they kind of were held in jail for certain amounts of time. And then after the president's visit, perhaps they just kind of went. I don't know. Regardless, if this was all a plan to try and secure his re-election, it did not work. He lost to Sheriff Francis, who I already mentioned. Um, but Cleary contested the election results because he didn't believe he lost, as he only lost by 36 votes. Hearings were held, but Sheriff Francis was determined to be the legitimate winner. Again, the parallels between then and now. Just it's feel... horrifying. The Six Mile House was seized on February 18, 1819. One report says the, the Fishers were incarcerated that same day. But as we know, the statements weren't recorded until February 20th. The Five Mile House was seized also February 18, 1819. But William Hayward wasn't technically incarcerated until July 1819 because he had gone on the run when he was out on bail. Right. So... It is important to note that if a property is vacant and the owner of the property does not contest wanting to maintain ownership of that property for one year after it has been seized, that property can be purchased for the amount of the back property taxes owed on the property, meaning any person in interested in that property could potentially move in and take possession. So remember how the lynch mob came, they burned down the five-mile house, then they go to yeah. the six-mile house, and David Ross was placed in that house to guard it for some reason? This is proof that they that lynch mob was trying to seize these properties. Otherwise, they would have just left it, right? Like, why would they put sure. him in there if they weren't trying to seize it as, a, as you know, potentially for themselves? Um, and... If they need that property to be unoccupied and uncontested for a year, I'd say incarcerating the owners of the property would be a great way to do that, wouldn't you? Yeah. Oh. I will also remind you that John and Lavinia Fisher were executed one year to the day of their incarceration. February 18th, 1820, they were, they were uh, executed. If they had died during that year... I'm speculating, I don't know, but I'm wondering if family members of some kind could have fought for a right to the land. I don't know. But I think because they were in prison at the time, it kind of revokes their rights, and then they're dead, and then it's over, right? Sure. More proof of that is that William Hayward was technically incarcerated July 1819. He was executed August 1820, so one year and a few weeks after he was incarcerated. So the Five Mile House which no longer stood, but the land had officially been uncontested by its owner for a year at that time. Also, burning the inns down on this land made the properties less appealing to potential outside buyers. So it's not like they're going to have some people that are like, oh, I might want to run an inn. No, no. Meaning, doesn't it feel possible that the sheriff could have thought about a use for that land? Like, I don't know, maybe a place to put a naval base? Mm-hmm. The timing of the seizing of the land being February 1819 with the president's visit set for April 1819 and the fact that Governor Geddes, the man who desperately wanted that naval base in Charleston, 
get was also involved. Sorry, Governor Geddes, the man who desperately wanted that naval base in Charleston, was also involved in the very first land scam in Florida's history as a part of the United States. Florida land scam side note. Oh, boy. 1815, Juan Pablo Salas obtained the island of Key West in a Spanish land grant. In 1819, Spain ceded Florida to the United States. Key West was going to be a major seaport for America, and one of the individuals interested in the Keys was John Geddes. He negotiated a private purchase of Key West, or so he thought. Salas had sold the land, excuse me, island, to John Strong, who transferred his claim to Geddes. Strong got the island in trade for a sloop, a boat. Um, But Salas had also sold the island to John Simonton first. So Geddes decides he's going to just take the island by force in April 1822. He sent a Dr. Montgomery, a George M. Geddes, two carpenters, and three slaves to the island with enough lumber to build a shed. Simonton and Geddes were essentially in a race to file their claims on Key West, but Simonton beat Geddes probably due to having influential friends in Washington. On May 23, 1838, Simonton and his business partners were named the legal owners of Key West. So it should be noted that Governor Geddes had naval base dreams for Charleston that did not come true. President Monroe did have that base built in Virginia. But what's ironic is that the Charleston Naval Clinic, formerly known as the Charleston Naval Hospital, currently sits on the land where the Six Mile House once was. The descendants of William Hayward, who got the Five Mile House land back into their family, Um, because Nathaniel Hayward Sr., who was William's father, was smart enough that he panicked at some point uh, after William was arrested and his other son died, both in 1819. He put that land in his daughter's name and her husband's name. And so there was, you know, I'm sure they had to sort it out, but he did it at a time where that land basically went back into the family. Uh, And then 71 years later, descendants of the Hayward family did sell to the Navy. Uh, I don't know if that was a symbolic FU to Governor Geddes or if it was just a coincidence, but it is interesting to me that that was, you know, we're speculating potentially what that land could have been wanted for, didn't get used for, but then eventually still ended up in the hands of the Navy. Sure. Another piece of this puzzle is going back to the beginning of this whole story. When I hammered home, How weird it was that John Wilson, the state engineer, was on the jury in the Fisher's trial. The man who is directly responsible for the appropriation of land and its conversion to state use was on the jury that indicted the owners of that land, which feels like a massive conflict of interest, does it not? Yeah, yeah, it does. Especially when it turns out that John Wilson had put together a report in 1818 about the state of public buildings in various districts and how how easily navigated South Carolina's rivers were. So a year before the president was looking for somewhere to build that naval base, John Wilson wrote a report about it. So it should also be noted that Wilson had also previously been involved in seizing land and converting it for military use, and he had been doing it in the Charleston area. Also, John Wilson had a civil dispute with John Fisher's uncle and father. John's father, James, had died. So his brother, being John's uncle, George Fisher, was the administrator of James's affairs. 
1810, he had been involved in a lawsuit on behalf of his deceased brother James against state engineer John Wilson. John Wilson owned, sorry, owed James Fisher for horse gear and saddle wear. So there's another huge conflict. He shouldn't have been sitting on the jury for a case involving the, the, the son of this man that he had been involved in a court case with? They didn't vet these jury members, I'm assuming. Or perhaps they did. Oh, oh yeah, that... I right? mean, that feels more accurate to what I think we can assume happened. Uh-huh. James Fisher was also involved. So James Fisher, again, I know there's a lot of J names here, but James Fisher being John Fisher's father. James Fisher was also involved in a petition against William Hayward in 1813. 18 people were listed on that petition, which was for $7,480, which would be the equivalent of just over $172,000 in today's 2022 numbers. A portion of that money belonged to the late James Fisher. The reason that John Fisher could have been inhabiting the Six Mile House may have been because William Hayward had given it to him to repay the debt he owed his father. Because John being the living male heir to James means he would have been entitled to the repayment of any of his debts before his uncle George. So it didn't matter that George was running his, his finances and his affairs. The son, the, the legal heir, would be the person to get that money. Because as of 1819, and this is what's wild, all of the land, the Five Mile House and the Six Mile House, was listed in the name of Nathaniel Hayward. William Hayward's father. So it does feel that the only reason why John Fisher would have been in that house was because it was this debt repayment as owed to his father from William Hayward. Oh, Jesus. So now we do know a little bit about John Fisher's family lineage and how troublingly problematic it was for him in this case, but it should be noted that nothing is known about Lavinia's family history. What we do know was that she was described by one source as, quote, an Amazon, meaning her skin was darker. White women weren't hanged in respectable society in the 1800s. So the question is, what if she wasn't considered white? In an 1810 bill of sale to Dr. Joseph Glover, Colonel George Fisher sold two female slaves for the sum of $700 or just over $16,000 today. And we know that slaves at the time were given the last names of their owners, so these girls' last names would have been Fisher. The girls on the bill of sale are listed as Sally and Lavinia. In 1810, Lavinia would have been 18 years old, so she could still easily be classified as a girl. So a slave girl named Lavinia Fisher arrived in Charleston nine years before the incident that happened at the Six Mile House. Is it possible that John Fisher had previously been interested in Lavinia? It was something that was obviously not uncommon, but also not accepted in society. What if they had a secret relationship as teenagers? And when John's uncle found out, that's why he sold Lavinia and Sally to break up this teenage love affair. There have never been any marriage documents found for John and Lavinia Fisher. And isn't it convenient, though, that they had the same last name so people could just assume that they were married, even though legally they may never have been? John Fisher was living in North Carolina 
near where his uncle lived. But after Lavinia was sold, he moved to South Carolina, where Lavinia had moved. Interesting. It's possible that she could have been of mixed race, which is why she was described as being darker skinned, but not described as being black. It could also describe why John was so protective of her and didn't want to leave her because it sounds like it's possible. Again, we're speculating, but it sounds like it is Lavinia, not a super common name. It does sound possible that these could have been literal teenage sweethearts who he moved mountains to try and be with, made it happen uh, in a time where that would absolutely not have been acceptable Sure. I mean, like I said, the intrigue continues. So I want to address a couple of quick things about the original legend of Lavinia Fisher, uh, because I would be remiss if I didn't identify this as being things that we can poke holes in. Sure. So Lavinia was called a serial killer who buried bodies under the Six Mile House. The legend was that the cellar was uncovered uh, under the Six Mile House was uncovered in June 1819, filled with multiple skeletons. But death records from 1819 and 1820 don't show any evidence of a mass grave ever being found. And in 1970, when groundbreaking began for the new Charleston Naval Hospital, exactly where the Six Mile House once sat. No unearthed bodies, no cellars, nothing was ever discovered. In the three years it took for that hospital to be built, nothing was ever recovered from that land. Cellars in Charleston were not popular in the 1800s. Charleston is below sea level and has constant drainage and flooding issues, so the likelihood of a cellar in that area where the Six Mile House was sitting was extremely unlikely. Beer cellars were popular in Europe around that time, but beer cellars in Charleston would have been above ground. So how would this story have gotten started? Well, there's actually a direct connection. One man, Peter Nielsen, a Scottish writer who claimed to have been in Charleston in 1820, wrote a book in 1830 in which he stated that the Six Mile Gang had, quote, for years carried on a complete trade of murdering and robbing, robbing altogether unheard of, except perhaps in Italy in former times. He continued on saying, quote, On digging around this den of iniquity, a great number of skeletons were found, no doubt the remains of unfortunate travelers. So he would have been familiar with cellars because he's from Europe and they had them at that time. Um, he may have just assumed that they had them also in Charleston. Uh, they did not. But speaking of Europe... Penny dreadfuls were very popular in Europe in 1830. Uh, these were books filled with sensational fiction or over-exaggerations of actual events. And it seems that the Penny Dreadful account of the Fishers that this man wrote boosted their villainy as much as dime novels in the later 1800s did for outlaws like Billy the Kid. He literally <laughs> just made it up to make money and sell books. Of course. Course. I will add, there were two bodies discovered in a fresh grave in the woods near the Six Mile House eight days after the original incidents had happened. However, the man in the grave had been shot to death, and below him was a young slave girl who they estimate had been buried at least two years prior. Very sadly, unmarked graves 
were not uncommon during this time for slaves. Um, it's more than possible that this man also had been shot in the raid on the Five Mile House eight days prior. These bodies were never criminally connected to the Fishers in any way. So there were those bodies found in the area, but again, it feels like it was just a coincidence. It Again, it also doesn't fit the M.O. of how of how the story would go that she would poison these men and then they would, you know, John would rob them, kill them, and dismember them. So, sure, you know, and the fact that that the the younger gal had been in there had been buried, they think for two years, also doesn't really connect to um, to the mo either because they were only killing men, judging by the legend. Uh, another thing to debunk very quickly: we know that the Six Mile House was burned to the ground immediately after the Fishers were arrested. So the detail that Lavinia had asked for someone to get her wedding dress brought to her so she could be executed in it um, is impossible. The dress would no longer exist if it ever existed in the first place because the house and all of its contents had burned down. I do wonder if because the Fishers were both wearing white, either someone mistakenly said it was like her wedding dress or if this was just embellished over time. But there's also, again, no proof that they were ever officially married, so there may not have even been a wedding dress in the first place. Now, very quickly, I got to talk about just the true amount of rights that the Fishers had violated in the, and Hay, William Hayward had violated as well uh, in this case. So the lawyer prosecuting the Fishers was Attorney General Robert Hayne. He was an open advocate of state laws preempting federal laws, meaning for him, the federal constitution didn't mean anything. It wasn't worth the paper it was written on to him. So that makes sense when you break down just how many of the constitutional rights were ignored in this case. So for context, in 1791, the Bill of Rights was passed. The Fourth Amendment to the United States Constitution guarantees the right against unreasonable search and seizure. I don't know, but a mob showing up at your home and place of business and telling you to leave and then burning it to the ground, I feel like that would probably count as search and seizure, certainly seizure. We also know that David Ross had been put in that house to, quote, protect it, watch over it. So they were clearly trying to seize that house. So that's an amendment right violated there. The Second Amendment, of course, one that's often talked about, the right to bear arms. The charges in the David Ross case do seem a little odd when you start to think about the fact that the Fishers lived and owned and worked in the Six Mile House. They came home after being driven out by an angry mob to find David Ross in their home. He had no legal right to be there. They had a legal right to remove him from their home. Their neighbor's home and business had been burned to the ground that same day as it had been forcibly taken by armed men. By today's standards, this could be considered a home invasion. Sure. So it's valid that they would use their guns to defend their home. I want to remind you, that's something that to this day people talk about, the right to bear arms and having guns to defend their home. And yet, that was what one of the things that led to them being charged in this crime. When you start to unravel this, it just starts to become insane that these people were charged. The Sixth Amendment is the right to a trial by jury. I will remind you, the Fishers and William Hayward were charged for the John Peoples case, but were never given a trial for the case, sorry, the John Peoples case, but were never given a trial for that case and were killed as a punishment for that case. If they had tried that case, someone may have pointed out how odd it was that John Peoples had gone to the Six Mile House that day. 
He had to pass the four-mile house. Why not stop there? Then he passed the smoldering remains of the five-mile house and decided to stop in at the six-mile house, where arguably people were pretty on edge given the events of the day. He says he was accosted and robbed and then returned to Charleston. The alleged robbery retroactively justified the actions of the mob. So it almost seems that the mob went, did what they were doing. The sheriff said, oh no, what are we going to do now? And then maybe, I don't know, sent John Peoples to go and antagonize and give them a second person because once there was that second victim, then it was David Ross and John Peoples, that allowed Sheriff Cleary to ride in, make arrests, and look like a hero. And considering John Peoples was the one identifying the Fishers in the lineup later, having no clue who they would have actually been, him having that cheat sheet list on hand at the time, it just feels like perhaps they were working in cahoots. There, I said it, cahoots. Now, the next one is, of course, the Eighth Amendment right, uh, which says excessive bail may not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. Just a reminder, the Fishers and William Hayward were hanged for the crime of highway robbery in a system that still gave out whippings, croppings, and brandings. Execution, I'm going to say it, cruel and unusual. Just a reminder, they branded another man that same year for the crime of manslaughter, but they hanged all of these people for highway robbery. If you if branding someone is appropriate for manslaughter, it just seems like a real leap to me that hanging would be appropriate for highway robbery, which as I just broke down, doesn't even feel like it was highway robbery and there was no trial to begin with anyway. So, in conclusion, dear listeners, I wanted to pursue this case when I heard that Lavinia was the first female serial killer in the United States. But this is such a great example of how important it is, obviously, to get the full story and never assume that the hype you may have heard about someone is true. In this case, a woman, painted as a cold-blooded witch, may actually have been a woman of color who's, who devoted, whose devoted life partner did everything he could to try and protect her, but in the end, he simply couldn't. And while it may seem that the truth um, has less to be afraid of and less things that could haunt my dreams than a typical serial killer case, make no mistake, crooked cops are one of my biggest fears, so trust me, I have had sleepless nights this week. I would also be remiss if I didn't mention that the real horror show here, obviously, is the slave trade, which would not be ended in the United States until the 1860s, over 40 years after this case took place. At that time, it was estimated that there were just under 4 million slaves living in the southern United States. The 13th Amendment, 13th Amendment adopted on December 18, 1865, officially abolished slavery, but freed black people's status in the post-war South remained precarious at best, as there were significant challenges awaiting them during the Reconstruction period. Previously enslaved men and women received the rights of citizenship and the equal protection of the Constitution in the 14th Amendment and the right to vote in the 15th Amendment. But these provisions of the Constitution were often ignored or violated, and it was very difficult for black citizens to gain a foothold in the post-war economy thanks to restrictive black codes and regressive contractual arrangements such as sharecropping. Sharecropping was a type of farming in which families rent small plots of land from a landowner in return for a portion of their crop to be given to the landowner at the end of each year. And as I'm sure you're all guessing, no, it was not a great system for black farmers whatsoever. 
1877, the KKK was alive and well in the South, and and it wouldn't be until the 1960s that the civil rights movement took place, which achieved the greatest political and social gains for Black Americans since Reconstruction. Even with all of this being said, it didn't just solve the issue of racism, obviously. There is obviously so much still left to be done in the United States and around the world. The Black Lives Matter movement was started in 2013 as a movement to end systemic racism, gun violence, and police brutality against African Americans. I would implore everyone who hasn't to take the time to read about the origins of slavery in this country and get a better understanding of this part of American history that many would prefer we forget. After all, the fact that the civil rights movement happened less than 100 years ago feels crazy to think about. But it is an important reminder that we cannot get complacent when it comes to racism in this country and around the world. Reporting for True Crime and Cocktails, I'm Lauren Ash. Oh, look, what, what a surprisingly heartbreaking ride that we just went on. Yeah, yeah. I, I took a lot of notes. I love uh, it. And as we went, I highlighted the ones that I felt were the most important to read. Mm-hmm. Like this is highlighted, sharpied everything. Um, so I need just a moment to gather it before I get into it. So we're going to take one more quick break, hit the can, stay hydrated, and we will be right back with our final thoughts on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to this Lavinia Fisher episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Oh, shit. We were everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I I take notes. Um, I will, and I mean, I will say this uh, very honestly. Uh, I make notes uh, to read because I found it's just always easier uh, when I do the research. It's just easier to read it. 
than the the way I used to do it, which was very stressful for me trying to pretend I wasn't reading off of something and taping things to my walls to look around. It was a nightmare. So now I just openly read it because it's just so much easier to make it for flow. But when I'm on this side and I'm driving the bus, uh, I have a very bare bones thing written out uh, that I print out that's like, you know, this is you coming in where it's like, welcome to True Crime and Cocktails. Make sure you ask her about a drink. Then you have to go into the break with something. And while she's talking, I come up with something that I'm going to, and I write it down for what we're going to go into so it can be more for each episode. I have covered those papers (laughs) in so many notes and like I, for anyone viewing, like I have highlighted and just <laughs> like so many arrows. So this is going to be a, a treat for all of us. And I warn you, this will not be uh, as eloquent as Lauren's final notes usually are on this show. This is going to be everywhere and nowhere all in between. Because uh, again, I'm not reading everything, just the things I felt the need to highlight. Some of them? Why? I don't know. Oh, so early on, you uh, were talking about um, Panic of 1819, uh, Yellow Fever Pandemic. uh, And then your comment was like, is this relevant? I don't know. Why are we saying this, Lauren? And to that, I say, you're gifting us with knowledge. Never question it. Never apologize. Thank you. Uh, Wagon trade. Uh, I have never once survived the Oregon Trail. Listen. Never once. Uh, I remember, I mean, you remember the tiny office where we slept that Christmas in like 1994, yes. 96 of or whatever course. it was. I think it was 94, um, where we got the slide whistles, which, big mistake there, Santa. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, I, I spent many an hour in that office on the computer on the Oregon Trail, and I never fared well. Um, I never, like, I know it would have been different being back then, but I, like, now, I wouldn't survive a day. I, like, I'd be that girl in the movie walking around going, I don't have a signal. Does anyone else have a signal? Like, I'd be that girl, because I'd be like, but wait, I, I can't play homescapes without wi-fi you know like i don't know maybe i can i don't know probably not the point is uh i also love under wagon trade i wrote oh those poor horses i know i can't even begin to think of it but i'll say this to maybe help lighten the thought of the horses currently going viral and i don't know if you've seen this and i will try to remember to post a picture that beautiful horse sugar I've seen it multiple times. I will like it every single time I see it. Uh, It's a horse that every time its owner comes towards it with a saddle, the horse lays on the ground and closes its eyes and will not open its eyes until the person has walked away. And the fact that horses sleep standing up (laughs) and sugar feels the need to go that extra mile and go, no, no. I'm going to lay down. I'm convinced Sugar's playing dead. Sugar's not. Sugar's playing dead. Sugar's playing dead. And that's, I've never wanted a horse more in my life. I love her. Than I want Sugar. I love her. I think that's what a a beautiful gift 
uh, that sugar is to our lives. Um, uh, a lynch mob and, uh, quote, their own brand of law is so terrifying to me. Uh, and this very lovely statement that I quickly wrote down. We were worried about losing people before <laughs> when we talked about guns. Uh, to the 31 members of Patriot Front who plan to attack a Pride event in Idaho, fuck you. And this, dear people, is why Pride events are so important, because bigots are dangerous and no one should fear celebrating who they are, unless they are a member of Patriot Front or Proud Boys, and then you're a piece of shit and you don't deserve any celebration. There you are. 100%. Every single one of their faces, I'm just like, yeah, I get why you're sad. Oh, I know. I get it. I get why your existence is so sad. Well, and and but but you know, I I think it's actually great that you brought that up because that is connected to what we're talking about here. That that is the exact same concept. Well, it's just that we don't do it anymore because we had I don't know um, evolved. We would have thought at least slightly past that yeah. kind of bullshit. But yeah, no, yeah. exactly. It's terrifying. Oh, 100% it's, it is. Yeah, there's no, yeah, yeah, I got no time for that shit. Yeah. Uh, saying a group of gentlemen does not make it any less of a mob. Nope. Nice try. Nice try, Sheriff. Uh, wood chips on the floor for a bathroom is horrific. Uh, I had written down and then over time highlighted and then over time circled um, jury John Wilson, state engineer, Six Mile burnt down naval base. That governor was dirty. <laughs> Is the uh, the direction that took for me. Oh, yeah. Uh, people showing up to see if a lawyer would get two convictions in a row. We as humans have not changed. Nope. The fact that like a giant court case is like, oh, everyone's going to go see it. It's it's wild to me how we've just been the same humans Mm -hmm. For hundreds of years. Uh, John getting caught because he wouldn't leave Lavinia is the movie I want. I know. Oh, my God. Because you know, you know how much a deep, deep love story will get me. Like, anything could happen. But if it's like, oh, it was because he loved her, I'd be like, oh, there we go. Like, I'm immediately hooked. Immediately. Well, yeah, because a lot of the story, the legend, oh. was that he was a coward. He blamed her for everything. But all the documentation in Bruce Orr's research was quite the opposite, was that he was just very devoted to her, did not want to leave her, was trying to get her out of jail, ended up getting put back into jail because he was trying to rescue her. Like, again, like, there was no sort of evidence that he was the way he's been described in the legend at all. I mean... Something we like to say on this show often is show us the receipts and yep. Bruce did. He did. So he did. there we go. And, and it's all it's the, he's got his references and everything. Yeah. Shout out to him. He did amazing work. Honestly, like it's it's a, it was, a, I'm sure, a bear to try oh, and get all of this. God, I bet. Um, But yeah, oh, but worth it because what a wild story, right? Oh, 100 uh, percent. Oh, no trial. And being sentenced to death, even though you were never charged? I mean, what do you even say? That is fucking bananas. Yeah. And 
Oh, my God. Especially because it's not like they were just put in jail for a while. No. They were murdered. And it, yeah. And it's the fact that the only people that were punished were the three owners of those houses. Like, isn't that wild? Like, again, it's just like, it just feels so obvious now in retrospect that it's like, what was happening? And the fact that so many people let it happen. So many, like, rich old white dudes. And I also wonder (sighs) if George Fisher, who would have been John's living uncle at the time, again... It is a speculation. We don't know Lavinia's story. There like, again, that whole that whole stretch is a, all a speculation. But if it is possible, true, possibly true that she was the the slave that he had sold, and that John was in love with her, it's also possible that he didn't do much to help them get out of prison. That he or or with you know sure. what I mean? Like that's also possible too. That they kind of just got effed over by everybody. Yeah. No ad. No no advocate. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, about a woman being hanged, uh, didn't want to split the crowd. If that's true, fuck that old man. It's, I mean, also the fact that people are clamoring to go see a woman being hanged is, I mean, the the fact that I, I could never go and watch someone being hanged. Never. No. I can't imagine the fascination i just you oh she was also described as being very beautiful mm. so i'm also wondering if that was a part of it too was that she was Fair. this 28 year old beautiful um yeah like breathtaking woman and because there's also the report in one of the affidavits i think it was in people's affidavit he described a tall stout woman and they were like it must have been the other woman that was present because there was no kind of reports of the only descriptors of Lavinia were that she was beautiful. That was the and and that she looked like she had, she had a bit of a darker complexion. Um, that was the only things that he seemed to be able to find. Uh, I mean, oh, I, the idea that they're even more fascinated uh, if she's beautiful. I'm just even meaning like in the grand scheme of time we know that people would go watch hangings and i of course have never never understood it i just what do you get out of that i get that back then you had little entertainment but that's pretty horrific to sit through oh yeah um so you had pointed these out and i'm just kind of uh collecting them all the parallels to this and current day are unsettling. The financial issue of the Panic of 1819, the uh, pandemic yellow fever, uh, mob lynching, a man contesting election results, bullshit racism, innocent people being railroaded. (laughs) It's... Yep. It's just history is either repeating or we as humans, at our core, are just fucking garbage and have never changed. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so, I think both. I think both of those yeah, statements are which true. Is, which is unfair, but I mean, <laughs> good God, I just thought we would have been better by now. But again... Well, certainly, I think in people in power, I think that, that, like, you know what I mean? Like, I think that from, from the top, um, there's definitely... It's interesting that there's just so many parallels. It's, it's crazy. You would think, oh, there, there won't be anything. That's from, like, 
almost exactly 200 years ago. And yet. (laughs) And yet. And yet, here here we we are. are. Uh, 17 minutes for John to die. How fucking barbaric. Awful. I can't. Um, A daughter named Difficulty. Oh, oh, oh. That I know. I was like, "Oof!" There's volumes. Oh yeah, there. I was like, "There's, there's a, there's a bigger story there." I think. Yeah, uh, women killing their own children. I will never understand it. I know some have their reasons. Some have, you know, some sort of mental health problems. Some felt like they had no choice. That sort of thing. But I just will never understand it. Um, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was like five hundred something women. Hanged to the 19,000 men? Wild. I mean, in that, I'm like, okay, yeah, I mean, I get people being like, a woman being hanged, let's go. But I don't get someone's being hanged, let's watch that. I still will never get that mentality. Uh, you, you mentioned February 4th, and I wrote, hey, that's your birthday. Uh, hey, uh. You, you also mentioned February 22nd. And that is uh, my dear friend Kathy's birthday. I don't think she listens, but shout out, Kathy, even if you don't. <laughs> if you know the Kathy I'm referring to, uh, prepare yourself for next February to say happy birthday to her. There you go. Oh, where was I? That was three. This is page four. So words and phrases you used that tickled me. Hogwash. <laughs> Look alive, listeners. <laughs> Crotchety. Cahoots. And Judge Colcock. <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah. Oh, my God. You can't, you can't make this stuff up, folks. You can't, folks. Um, and I'll say this. Based on that beautiful conclusion, I am jealous of every high school teacher who got to read your essays. It only makes sense you were valedictorian. Again, Mama's proud. Thank you. So to that I say, Lauren Ash, thank you for your research. You may have worried about choosing this case, but you absolutely nailed it. Researching a case from the early 1800s isn't easy, Mm -hmm. but you were informative and entertaining. And as always, I am endlessly proud of you. Thank you. I learned it from you. Oh, stop. We don't have time. From you. We don't have time for emotion. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, who we are. Oh, and thank you, dear listeners, for taking this journey with us. We appreciate your support. And as always, make sure to give us a follow on the socials. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at True Crime and Cocktails or on Twitter at Not Detectives. And if you're looking for a way to spend some extra time with these chuckleheads, head on over to patreon.com slash truecrimeandcocktails. There are polls for future episodes, monthly live Q&As, bonus episodes with extra bits of true crime, extra bits of chucklehead. What more could you need? So if you want more, check out Patreon. And if you're looking to snag any true crime and cocktails merch, Head to TrueCrewMerch.com, the only place to get official True Crime and Cocktails gear. For the month of June, we are selling our True Crime and Cocktails Pride shirt with 
50% of sales being donated to the Trevor Project, which is the world's largest suicide prevention and crisis intervention organization for LGBTQIA plus youth. Lauren, would you like to tell the people about our next episode? Well, I wrote it down, but I don't know how if I'm going to pronounce it. <laughs> do you want to do it? I, you, I can you, if you, you know, like. You know it. Yeah. Well, it doesn't mean I'm going to say it right. Well, I'm going to say it the way I think it's said and the way it sounds like it's said. But it's... On the next True Crime and Cocktails, Sarah McDermott. See, I would have said McDiarmid. And I well, don't think I mean, she it. is, they are like a Scottish-Australian family, and so I've only really heard Australian accents saying it, so bless me, I've got a week to learn how you to say it. did better than I would have. Learn how point. to say it properly, you know? Oh, but I'm excited for uh, a case from Australia. Yeah. I'm very nervous about saying some of those names, but I'm going to do my best. Lauren. Would you like to say goodnight to the people? Goodnight, Chris Evans as Dennis. <laughs> Happy belated birthday, Captain America. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.